Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and today I'm talking with David Lindsay Roberts, author of Republic of Numbers, Unexpected Stories of Mathematical Americans Through History. This is a history of the maturation of mathematics as a discipline, as an institution, as a culture in the United States. Uh, Somewhat unconventionally written, it's organized around 20 short biographies, which are anchored to this series of decadal uh, seminal events in that development. We'll get into the themes and specific developments a little more in during the interview. But for now, I'd like to welcome Dave to the podcast. Thank you, Corey. Pleasure to be here. So, Dave, I'd wonder if you could begin by describing your own background in uh, mathematics uh, and or in the history of mathematics and how that eventually led to the project that culminated in this book. Yes. Um, well, I have what I would consider a fairly broad uh, background in mathematics. Some, some might say parts of it are shallow, but, it, but I, I have some, my fingers in a number of different parts of mathematics I have had over the, over the years. Um, so I've, I have some experience with, with what it means to be a research mathematician, for example. On the other hand, I've, I've taught mathematics at, at many levels, from pre, pre-algebra all the way up to third semester calculus. Um, I've also uh, worked as an applied mathematician. And finally, I have uh, professional training as a historian of mathematics. So I I cover a lot of bases with regard to my background in in mathematics. And and moreover, I I guess I would say that I have a deep um, personal connection with mathematics from from family uh, connections. Uh, My father was a PhD mathematician. Uh, my grandfather, my mother's father, was a PhD physicist with a um, major interest in mathematics. Uh, my grandmother, my mother's mother, was had a master's degree in mathematics. Um, so, so I do have this. Uh, mathematics has been part of my life for a long time, and and, and in married in, in many different guises, I would say. Now, as far as uh, I, I, I started off, in fact, um, my education, I got a, a bachelor's degree in mathematics at Kenyon College, Liberal Arts College in Ohio. And then I went on to graduate work in mathematics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I had, in, had the intention of getting a PhD in mathematics. The, the idea was that I would become a research mathematician. That was my goal at that time. And that did not work out. I, I instead got a consolation master's degree in mathematics and then a second master's degree in industrial engineering, more properly 
I mean, that's what it says on my diploma. Um, but it really was what mathematicians refer to as operations research, or a variety of applied mathematics. And I used that master's degree to, to get employment in the defense consulting industry near Washington, D.C., um, which is where I grew up. So I was really returning home for that. Um, and, and I worked in that field for 11 years. And after I got tired of that, uh, that, that, that was an interesting job for a while, but I did eventually get tired of it um, and, and thought I would like to go back into academia. But I didn't really want to go back into mathematics per se. I finally decided to go back in history of science. I went and got a PhD in the history of science at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore with a dissertation focused on history of mathematics education. And I, really, I became essentially a specialist in that subfield within the history of science. And uh, the, the, the particular, I, I wrote some, some books um, and some articles on the subject. I, I, there was a book in 2008 that I collaborated on with Peggy Kidwell and Amy Hackerberg-Hastings called Tools of American Mathematics Teaching. It's a what historians refer to as material culture book, because it talks about uh, you know physical things used in the math classroom over the past 200 years of American history, blackboards and protractors and slide rules and so on. Um, that was one book that I, I contributed to. Then I wrote a book on my own, which is basically a um, a revision of my dissertation at Johns Hopkins called um, American Math Mathematicians as Educators. And that book appeared in 2012. Uh, and at some point I, get, I came to the attention of, of um, one of the editors at the Johns Hopkins University Press, uh, Vince Burke, I guess I had written a, I, I had reviewed a manuscript for him, and I guess he was impressed with what I had done with that. Um, and he had an idea for a book about history of mathematics that he thought was unique, which would be a decade, decade by decade um, survey of American history with each uh, decade focused on some mathematical event. And he wondered if I might be interested in in writing such a book, and I pondered it for a while, and I eventually um, decided I would take a crack at it, but I ch changed it um, fairly substantially, I, I would say, because I put more of a biographical emphasis on it than I think he originally intended, and I didn't uh, focus, I didn't, the chapters were no longer tightly focused on a decade. They were, I, I would begin a chapter with a some episode that occurred in a decade, but then I would I would go backward in time and forward in time in order to cover the biography of the person who was involved with this initial episode. And so that uh, that became the, the, this new book, uh, Republic of Numbers. And so you deviated a little bit from your editor's suggested um, uh, project. And uh, in particular, I'm interested in how you chose, how you selected, rather than events, the characters, the mathematicians or uh, people um, 
whose activities contributed to the history or to the development of mathematics and how, and in particular, since they're so interconnected through institutional affiliations, through advisorship, uh, through other social connections, whether that sampling was done more in a sort of uh, citation tracing way or more as uh, a selection based on trying to build up a representative sample of the kinds of people who contributed to uh, mathematics over the course of our history. Yeah, that, that, that was really quite interesting, the process of choosing. I, I, some of it, um, I sort of took the path of least resistance and, and used people that I had uh, so, already had some special knowledge of. Um, so some of this knowledge came from deep in my own personal experience. Um, for, for example, um, Willard Gibbs and E.B. Wilson were connected to me in a very personal way because Gibbs was the teacher of E.B. Wilson, and E.B. Wilson, in turn, was the teacher of my grandfather, um, R. Bruce Lindsay. And so that uh, that that uh, led me to to uh, to 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 propose uh, both Willard Gibbs and E.B. Wilson as possible chapter subjects, and then I was able. I felt that I was able to, to treat them in such a way that they 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 made sense in the book. Um, there was another set of uh, individuals who became subjects of chapters, who uh, were connected with an oral history project that I did in the uh, early two thousands uh, for the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics with support from the Educational Advancement Foundation of Austin, Texas. And I, I did these interviews mainly with with math with math educators of various stripes, and three of them, um, Frank Allen and Isaac Virshoop and uh, and Edgar Edwards, became subjects of chapters. Um, now, some of the people there there were a couple that that I had hardly had any knowledge of before I uh, wrote wrote my chapters. Um, I would say Catherine Beecher, for example, was someone I, I had only vaguely heard of. I knew of Harriet Beecher Stowe, her sister, but I didn't really know much about Catherine Beecher at all. So it, it was an interesting process where I would, you know, I would come up with a person. It, it, it seemed to me that, that it, sometimes I would come up with a person and then find an incident that seemed interesting, dramatic enough to, to, to use as the opening of the chapter. Uh, there were a couple times where I had an incident and then this had to decide whether the person connected with it was of sufficient uh, importance or, or interest to me. So it, 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 was, it was a very uh, uh, fascinating process coming up with these people. And in addition to the episodes or the events that open the chapters, you conclude each chapter with, as I read them, uh, a coda that gives the reader an impression of the legacy of the individual or individual's um, subjects of those chapters. And I wonder if you framed these chapters consciously with a theme or even a takeaway moral in mind, or if these were just your attempts to give an impartial account of the person's life as it 
influenced the trajectory of mathematics? Yeah, I, I think it's more the last of those choices that you gave me. I don't think I was very consciously trying to to come up with morals, um, and and I, but I you know I did want to have some sort of some sort of satisfying, at least to my mind, some sort of satisfying ending to a chapter. I didn't want to let things sort of you know, drivel off without kind of making a point of some sort. So some, some, I'm, I'm happier with some of the end chapter endings than I am with others, just as I'm happier with some of the openings than, than with others. But uh, I, I did try to, to have them end with, a, as you say, a coda. With that, I thought we would talk through a handful of your mini biographies, your chapters, to get a, a sense for the kinds of stories you're telling and the kinds of people at the centers of them. Beginning with chapter two, Sylvanus Thayer, who was an early West Point graduate and left quite a substantial impact on West Point Military Academy. That's right. Um, now, I didn't, Thayer's is someone that I didn't have any particular personal knowledge of or deep, deep connections with. Um, as, as soon as I began to learn about, uh, as soon as I guess I became uh, a professional historian of, of mathematics and especially interested in mathematics education, um, I uh, learned of the importance of West Point in, in the history of, of American mathematics education. The, the uh, I guess I should say, well, it's, it's both higher education and, and, it, and they had, had had some influence on secondary schools too, as I'll mention shortly. But um, when, when the country was founded, there were a number of colleges that were in existence, famous colleges that people have all heard of and that still exist today, you know, Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth and William and Mary. Um, but these these colleges in the late 1700s were, were basically uh, for, for training clergymen. Uh, they, they, they might cl train a few lawyers and doctors too, but they were not, specifically not, training anybody that might be, you know, they, they, weren't, they were, had no intention of training people to become what we would consider a scientist or mathematician. They, they might have created a few by accident, but, they, but not, not on purpose. And, uh, and and they basically were not concerned with what we would call generally technical education, uh, mathematics and related fields. Um, and so West Point came along in the early 1800s with with a very different um, aim, which was very much more technical than anything that had been previously um, going in the way of uh, a, a higher education, and it. They made a point there from early on of uh, of emphasizing mathematics in order to train, especially military engineers, those who were involved with uh, fortifications and uh, and figuring out how to aim artillery and such such things. Uh, there there was felt to be a clear need for such people to know something about technical matters, and so that it was not proper to train them the way people were being trained at Harvard. Now, uh, the, the early years of the 
uh, military academy at West Point were kind of chaotic. And and what Thayer did is is to regularize things, to put you know in place some some rules and regulations that seem to us so obvious that they ought to be done that it's hard to understand why they weren't done beforehand. You know, just the, the fact that every he, he said now everybody that wants to to come to the academy needs to show up in the fall at the same time to begin classes. You know, previously people just sort of wandered in anytime they felt like it. Um, and he provided, you know, housing for the students and faculty and, and you know, class schedules and, and so on. And, you know, a very strict program to, to, to determine, you know, when somebody was, was, was fully trained and could be appropriately graduated. And he had learned about, tech, you know, what, what technical education could be at a very high level when he uh, went over to France shortly before he became superintendent at the military academy um, and, and learned what was going on at the famous school over there in Paris, the Ecole Polytechnique, which was uh, the famous uh, school that was staffed by some very high-level mathematicians and, and was also had an engineering uh, aim, although some of the mathematicians were, were, were teaching things and, and doing research at a level well beyond anything needed by any of the engineers. But uh, Thayer took great inspiration from the Ecole Polytechnique, and he uh, came back to the, to, to the States and, and, and brought some of the lessons over to, to the academy when he became superintendent, at a very young age, I might add. Um, and then he stayed for a very long time, much longer than anybody subsequently uh, would stay as superintendent. He was there for, for 16 years. And nobody else stayed longer than eight. 16 years um, included um, quite a few elements of his legacy, including the training of teachers who would go on, in addition to uh, teaching courses at West Point, all over the rest of the United States. That, that's that's right, yes. He... Um, trained a number of, of teachers who then stayed on as teachers at West Point, um, and they in turn trained uh, other teachers who, who became teachers at, at other institutions. There's quite, quite a large number of, of um, teachers at, at, uh, at, uh, of graduates of West Point became mathematics teachers at either other colleges or at secondary schools. And some of the, some famous generals, for example, Stonewall Jackson was a math teacher um, taught, taught at uh, Virginia Military Institute. And uh, Robert E. Lee taught mathematics at West Point. Ulysses S. Grant uh, had, had fully intended to be a math teacher, but he got kind of sidetracked. So, and then there's other, you know, much less famous folks that, that became teachers, uh, and, and with, with uh, and had had longer careers as teachers than some of these um, generals who, who were the famous generals. But uh, it, it's uh, and and there were a number of West Point graduates who became textbook writers too, and and by that means they uh, spread the. Uh, the, the uh, mathematical literacy around the country. That makes for an interesting segue um, because 
uh, around the time Thayer was helping to inaugurate the institutionalization of mathematics training, Catherine Beecher and Joseph Ray, in their different ways, were helping to inaugurate the textbook industry. Can you talk a little bit about their contributions and their uh, contrast with each other? Yes, they, they are an interesting pair that uh, I, th- I just mentioned that I didn't know much about Catherine Beecher until I started to write this book. The other pair, uh, and the other member of the pair, Joseph Ray, was somebody that I learned on, I'd learned about fairly early on during my dissertation research because he was a uh, teacher of mathematics at a fa- rather famous high school in Cincinnati uh, called the Woodward High School which was uh, a school that produced a number of fairly prominent people, including a subject of another chapter, E.H. Moore, a famous mathematician at the University of Chicago. Also, Woodward uh, graduated um, William Howard Taft, the president of the United States. Um, So I was aware of Ray as as an important figure in mathematics education, and as I read about Cincinnati, I, I learned that that Catherine Beecher was in Cincinnati at the same time that Joseph Ray was, and moreover, she had written an arithmetic textbook just as Joseph Ray did. So uh, I found that an, uh, an interesting pairing that I could use uh, for that chapter. Um, Beecher had had a wide ranging intellectual interests. She was um, the one of a, a large family. Her, her father was a famous um, evangelical minister. And, and, of course, her sister was the famous Harriet Beecher Stowe of Uncle Tom's Cabin fame. But Catherine Beecher had many uh, claims to fame of her own right. She was very interested in, in, have, in dis- describing how women, especially unmarried women, could have careers on their own and, and, and could, could be properly educated to, to, to this uh, state. And, uh, and she used her uh, interest in education to, to found or promote several schools around the country in, in Hartford and in Cincinnati and in Milwaukee. And so she was a very interesting figure. Um, her, her arithmetic textbook was not terribly successful. She tended to blame that on the fact that she thought the publisher did not promote it sufficiently because she was a woman. And, and there's probably some truth to that. Um, Ray, on the other hand, um, was very successful as a textbook writer and became his books became the foundation of a great publishing juggernaut uh, that, that's literally sold millions of copies. He's, he's sometimes called the McGuffey of mathematics because, as, as many people will recall, there's a famous series of reading textbooks uh, written by William McGuffey, who was also at this Woodward High School in Cincinnati. And Ray and McGuffey were, were sort of simultaneously writing these, these textbooks, McGuffey in, in English and reading and, and Ray in in mathematics, and, and both of them were enormously successful, became you know, a, basically a publishing empire. And they were, they were publishing initially with a Cincinnati 
uh, publisher who was very aggressive in, in creating textbook series, which proved to be a very wise business decision that Catherine Beecher did not partake of. And uh, so, so the, the Cincinnati publishers were eventually bought out by publishers in New York City, but the, the Cincinnati who was the Cincinnati publishers were, were the, the kernel of that uh, that publishing empire. How about that? I did not know the the simultaneity of these two serialization efforts. And so while Ray, while Ray was um, pioneering serial textbook writing, Beecher was uh, to some extent pioneering the expansion of access to uh, mathematics education or education generally to women. A project that, that would continue right, on yes. for decades. Mm -hmm, that's right. Yes, she, she, uh, had, before she came to Cincinnati, she'd founded a school in Hartford uh, for women, and then when she came to Cincinnati, she founded a school there. Um, the the social uh, context there in Cincinnati was kind of tricky because. The you know, Cincinnati was in Ohio, where slavery was not legal, but right across the Ohio River was Kentucky, where slavery was legal. And she felt that she um, she felt compelled to speak out on on um, the slavery question. She tried to find a sort of middle way between uh, the the radical abolitionists and the slavery apologists, and and. Um, I guess you would say basically she got everybody mad at her, and this this did not help her uh, in, in in her um, educational um, efforts in Cincinnati. Eventually, she she left um, under somewhat unhappy circumstances. I guess I would have to say. So another pioneer in uh, expanding access to education was Kelly Miller, who himself was, as I recall, the first. Um, American black mathematics graduate student. Uh, yes, as far as far as I know, that is correct. Um, of course, there were not very when when he became a graduate student. Graduate study was of, of any kind for anyone of any race was a rare thing. Um, Harvard and Yale did not have graduate study for quite a while. Yale was a little bit more in advance than Harvard. But the, the school that really pioneered true graduate study in the way we think of it today was Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, which was founded and op opened its doors in 1876. And in the 18, and of course, I was, uh, as a graduate student, I was studying at Johns Hopkins in the 1990s and would naturally learn quite a bit about the, the institution. And, um, the, the folks there at Hopkins were, were rightly proud of, of their own history. And so I learned uh, about some of the things happening at Hopkins. And one of the things I learned there in the 1990s was about this interesting gentleman, Kelly Miller, who had been an early uh, graduate student in the 1880s, graduate student in mathematics. And, and I think he took some astronomy courses as well. And um, he, he had been, uh, his, his, his father was, he, he was born in, in, uh, in the Carolinas, in, in North Carolina. Um, his father was um, a, a free black man, rather a rarity at the time. His mother was, was born enslaved. 
Well, Kelly Miller uh, was born in 1863, I think it was. And so he was, um, I guess, you know, this, the Emancipation Proclamation had, had been um, already promulgated. So he was officially um, no longer enslaved, although in 1863, there wasn't anybody around to enforce this. But uh, so he, he grew up in rather uh, impoverished circumstances, but um, a northern um, missionary that came down there to 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 educate the newly freed uh, peoples there in, in the Carolinas uh, saw in Kelly Miller a uh, a talented mathematics student. This this missionary really didn't have much mathematics background himself, but he I guess had enough that he was able to recognize some real talent. And he guided Miller to uh, get a, a uh, bachelor's degree at Howard University in, in Washington, D.C., which was a, a university which was uh, mainly founded with the intention of, of educating the, the, uh, the newly um, freed folks, both, both men and women, by the way, um, at Howard initially. Right. In some sense, both um both a co-ed and an integrated university. That, that, that's right. Yes, right from the beginning. Uh, yes, uh, as, as we might mention shortly, Johns Hopkins was was uh, almost strictly male, and I have a chapter about someone who managed to, to sneak sneak by that those regulations a little bit. But anyway, Kelly Miller. Um, then uh, graduated from Howard, and then uh, his his talents were, were had, had impressed um, a, an individual that he'd gotten to know in the Washington D.C. technical community, Simon Newcomb, um, who, who was that time the, the chairman of the department at, at Hopkins, and he encouraged Miller to to uh, to apply, and and uh, got got him uh, got him into the. University as a graduate student. Unfortunately, Miller was not able to complete a degree there because they raised the tuition owing to some financial difficulties that Hopkins was having at the time in the 1880s. And so Miller left without a degree, but he had a good solid background and was able to then to become a professor himself, a professor of mathematics at, um, at his alma mater of Howard University, where he then taught mathematics for couple decades. And um, according to um, his autobiography, which which is it's unpublished, and I read in the archives there at Howard, uh, Miller wrote a, a, uh, a geometry textbook, which he was unable to find a publisher for. And unhappily, I have been able to find no uh, no evidence that this the manuscript still exists. Right. It's, One of the... It's a, one of the sadder paragraphs I remember reading. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So during this time, as an as a professor at Howard, uh, Miller got increasingly involved in the discussion over blacks and social power. Um, and the name of this chapter is, I think, an especially apt one: Stradler, uh, which refers um, in part to his. Um, wavering between the perspective of, of Booker T. Washington, this ideology of uh, pulling the black community, pulling itself up by its bootstraps uh, in, in search of uh, uh, economic independence versus that of W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, which was that blacks, or at least this talented 10th 
should aspire to greater social power through elite education. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Kelly Miller tried uh, to, to straddle this. You know, sometimes he would lean lean one way, and and sometimes he'd lean and lean another way. Um, and you're trying to find a sort of middle path there. Yes. Now you mentioned um, the quote that opens this chapter uh, refers to another way in which Miller uh, straddles. Yes. Yes. So I, I, I was happy with the, the title of this chapter, this, this straddler, because it did have sort of multiple meanings. The, the quote that, that opens the chapter is, is from Kelly Miller and it reads, the Negro should plant one foot on the Ten Commandments and the other on the binomial theorem. He can then stand steadfast and immovable, however the rain of racial wrath may fall or the angry winds of prejudice may blow and beat upon him. So he's standing on these two, you know, straddling um, religious religion and mathematics here. Mm-hmm. And am I right to take away from that chapter that he also was a bit of a straddler when it came to uh, devoting himself to research mathematics versus to researching mathematics pedagogy? Yes, that's right. He he he, he had some issues sometimes with, you know, he'd, he'd been trained, at, you know, at, the, at the, what, what was then the highest level of available uh, in, in mathematics in, in, in this country at Johns Hopkins. That was really the, the apex of what was uh, what could be learned about mathematics in, in an institution at this time in, in the United States. Um, so he was, you know, he was raring to go um, to, to, you know, really do some high-level mathematics. And then when he got out and, and was teaching um, students, they they weren't so enthused as he was, he had been, um, and it, you know, he had to sort of lower his sights. And so he had to, uh, and, and he, 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 he struggled with this. It's pretty clear from reading his, his autobiography that uh, he, he got a little bit disappointed, disillusioned with, with some of his um, educational ventures that, that he wished he could, he could teach students that were more uh, attuned to, to, to real, you know, what he considered real mathematics. But uh, he, he, I think that may have led in turn to, to, to partly to his, his turn towards sociology, which where he felt maybe that, that he was able to do more um, immediate good than he was able, had been able to do in, in mathematics education. And so the problem of making mathematics attractive to a learning audience uh, takes a different form uh, in the life of E.T. Bell. Yes, yes. He's, he's a very interesting figure who, who has, and he's one who has deep personal connections to me because my father um, sometime, I'm, I would imagine before I was born, bought a copy of Bell's most famous book, which is called Men of Mathematics. It was a book written in 1937 or published in 1937, and it consists of a number of short biographies of famous mathematicians, the cream of the crop of of Western European mathematics. It's right. It definitely, definitely has some. Uh, you know, there's there's a narrowness to it, but uh, it. Uh, it was a very well-received book by both mathematicians and lay lay people, and and, and 
it's it's very it's written in a very um, readable and entertaining style that has long attracted and continues to attract people. I picked it up around the house probably before I was even 13 years old, I would imagine, um, and, and started to, to browse in it and, and eventually you know, read the whole thing. Um, and I found it absolutely um, delightful and, and, and fun. And it, it helped inspire me to want to be a mathematician. And, and I, from, from reading about others' reactions to this, I'm not far from the only one who was inspired by E.T. Bell in this way. Now, later on, when I became a historian, I, I began to learn about how uh, Bell had, had embellished facts and, and was, you know, some of his statements are kind of wild and woolly. And, and I, I uh, have, have came to have a very much more ambivalent view of him. But, uh, and, and, but nevertheless, he's, he's still someone who I uh, have to say in, in some ways influenced the present book because, you know, he, he did have a series of chapters somewhat in the same way that I have a series of series of short biographies. And uh, so there's, there's no doubt that he influenced the book. Well, let's talk a little bit more about um, your ambivalence towards his um, met, his mode of communication, because this is something that also really struck me when I read this chapter. Um, I've I grew up in a household very um, uh, science oriented. I was encouraged uh, to play with uh, little science kits. I was introduced to Carl Sagan and later Neil deGrasse Tyson, and um, like your learning more about E.T. Bell, I eventually came to realize through other historians' work that um, these popularizers of science often embellished or um, misrepresented the histories of the disciplines they were communicating. And I wonder if, to you, Bell seems to fit that mold. Yes, yes, he does. He definitely does. Um, uh, he... he uh... I mean, so, some of what he's saying is he's, he's just he, he's trying to be entertaining, clearly, and, and, and often he succeeds. But but he is uh, um, misrepresenting things uh, to a to a somewhat unfortunate degree. He, he's he, he was and, and as, as in terms of the chapter that I wrote about him, he, he's he's very interesting to write about because he had such a, a varied career. He had essentially th- three different careers within mathematics that are, well, I guess one of them is not really mathematics per se, but um, for, for, he was a research mathematician in, in, in number theory. Uh, his, his work, it's a little hard. I'm, I'm not qualified to judge his work in number theory. I don't think he's considered, you know, one of the giants of the field, but he, he apparently has still has, there's some who, who find some of his work of, of interest, and he was quite prolific. I know I know that. Um, and then he was also quite prolific as a writer of science fiction. Uh, I, I've read some of it. It was it's interesting, but it it doesn't to me it doesn't read nearly as entertainingly as, as his, uh, his 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 popular mathematics books. And, and then and this 
so 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 his first career was was as a research mathematician. His second career was as a science fiction writer, and his third and most important career, I believe, was as a popularizer of mathematics and science. It occurs to me that Bell's careers are representative or, or indicative, maybe, of the transition that mathematics had successfully made by this point uh, to professionalization, to becoming a learned profession. Because as I read it, it's difficult to have specialties within a discipline that isn't, doesn't have a, uh, an, a, a vibrant professional community. And it doesn't really make sense to popularize a discipline that hasn't already become somewhat distanced from the public by its professionalization. Yeah, yes, I think that's very true. That's a very good way to put it. Um, so, yeah, and Bell... It, it, it it's um, the fact that Bell was able to carry on these you know, these three different uh, writing careers is, is really pretty remarkable. But uh, I don't know of anybody else who's really uh, managed to do that. Um, and and, it, and it's, it's at a time when when it's becoming harder and harder. I think he, he was doing this at a time when it was it was becoming harder and harder to 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 have a to, to be a, a real research mathematician and to do anything else in addition to that um, that's that's pretty remarkable well some other writers who had difficulty um, at least uh, maintaining uh, the commercial viability of their mathematics popularization uh, were Lillian Lieber and Hugh Lieber yes yes um, yeah and, and as I recall Corey you mentioned I think that uh, you you had not heard of them before you read my book. Is I had not, correct? and I yeah. very quickly added several of their books to my queue. <laughs> you know, I came to them relatively late myself. Um, you know, I mentioned that, that Metamathematics was a book my father had bought long ago, and, and it was literally it was literally lying around the house there. But he did not have any of the Libra books. Um, I, I vaguely recall him mentioning their most famous book, which is The Education of T.C. Mitts. But the, I, I think the, their kind of whimsical humor did not appeal to my father particularly, and so he didn't uh, buy any of their books. Um, they, they, they were writing roughly contemporaneously with Bell, but with a very different style. Um Lillian Lieber had actually um, come to this country as, as an immigrant from what was then, what is now Ukraine. Um, her, 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 she came from a, a, a Jewish family that uh, immigrated in the 1880s, and she was a very young child at the time. And then she grew up in New York City and eventually uh, went to Barnard and, and Columbia and, and then went to Clark University in, in Worcester, Massachusetts and got a PhD in, in chemistry, actually. Um, although she, her, she, she turned more and more towards mathematics. Uh, and, and after that, she, she taught at a number of different um, schools in New York and New England before finally landing at Long Island University. Um, she she had before she went to the Long Island University she had done some graduate some con 
some further graduate work in mathematics at Columbia, where she met Hugh Lieber, her, her future husband, and they both ended up as professors at, at Long Island University. Uh, but initially, I think they were both in mathematics, but Hugh then became more and more interested in art and became the chairman of the art department, where and Lillian became the chairman of the mathematics department. And they began in the 1930s to write a series of, of popular books about mathematics in a very unique style. They were illustrated by Hugh in a very rather fantastic sort of whimsical way. Um, and Lillian wrote all the words and, and, and the text was all written in a way, it was, there was a, all the lines were left justified and there's a lot of white space. And so it looks on the page like it's, it's poetry or verse. Um, she always insisted that this was not her intention. She just thought that this way of presenting text made for greater readability. And, and uh, there's something to that. It, it's, it's, it, when, I'll be interested about your reaction, Corey, when you actually you know, sit down and try to read these things. They read somehow differently than an ordinary uh, book. Um, oh, yeah, I will let you know. <laughs> and uh, they, they wrote a number of uh, these books. They started off writing about rather technical subjects, Galois theory and non-Euclidean geometry, and and, um, and they wrote a rather uh, detailed book about special and general relativity with lots of you know details about tensor calculus with subscripts and superscripts and you know, far beyond the technical details that bell tries to put into any of his popular books um, but uh, then their most famous book uh, which came out in the, in the uh, 1940s was this book called the education of tc mitts that it's an acronym stands for the celebrated man in the street and uh, it it has some whimsical parts to it, include but but also includes some 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 rather technical stuff. There's some stuff about finite geometries, which is you don't find uh, very much anywhere in a popular book. Uh, and and uh, so it's 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 quite a unique uh, approach to to getting people interested in mathematics. It it fell out of favor. Um, after her death, uh, or, or even before her death, I, I guess Hugh died first in the 1960s, and then these, these books kind of went out of print in the 1960s. They've, they've had a little bit of resurgence in the 2000s. So there's a small publisher, Paul Dry Books in Philadelphia, who has re been reprinting some of them and with, with some uh, success. Now, Reviewing the last three subjects we've discussed, or the last four subjects we've discussed, Kelly Miller, E.T. Bell, and the Liebers, um, something that I can't help but notice is that uh, they get, they incorporate mathematics progressively more into the humanities or intersect it with the humanities, the development of sociology, the, um, the study of the history of mathematics, and the expression or the communication of mathematics through poetry or verse or prose and art. Um, and I wonder what you think of this period, this century long period as um, the uh, emergence of the mathematical humanities. Yeah, I guess it's, it's 
probably connected with, with what you were mentioning earlier, you know, this professionalization. Mathematics is, you know, at one level is becoming very much more esoteric and hard for, for people to appreciate what, what the researchers are doing. Uh, and so there is some sort of, there, there, there are pressures, there are um, pressures to, to try to try to do something to connect it with, with what people might, might have some more uh, knowledge of or affinity for. Um, and I think that does contribute to, uh, to, to, to these various attempts in, in different ways, but, 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 but all have this common um, commonality of, of trying to connect mathematics with some other activity, some other human endeavor that might uh, be, be more, that, that, that ordinary educated people might be more attuned to. And so veering back into mathematics research and pedagogy, uh, jumping ahead to Isaac Virshup. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who was um, involved somewhat in the development or the popularization of the new, so-called new math. Yes. And seemed yes. to have left a, left a lasting influence on at least the University of Chicago community. Yes, that's that's right. Yeah, he he was one who I had interviewed um, in, in, I think, in the year 2000. I conducted an interview with him um, before he died. Um, and he came from a very uh, interesting background. He was a Holocaust survivor. He experienced some truly dreadful uh, experiences in uh, in the World War II era over in Poland, where he grew up. Before the war, he had been a student of one of the great mathematicians of, of, um, of the 20th century, Antony Zygmunt, um, great figure in trigonometric series and related mathematics and Zygmunt uh, had had made his way over to this country um, early on in, in World War II fortunately escaped much of what Virchup had to go through and Zygmunt later on invited Virchup to after after the war Virchup was living in France and Zygmunt invited Virchup to come come back over come come over to the United States at the University of Chicago, where Zygmunt was establishing a major research school in Fourier analysis. And Virchup came over, wrote dutifully wrote a dissertation on uh, something related to to Fourier analysis, uh, but then decided that what he could. He could most make a contribution to mathematics by uh, in, in the area of mathematics education. He could he could bring to bear his knowledge of what was going on in the educational fields, educational um, thought in Eastern Europe, especially the Soviet Union. He, he thought that there, that the United States had a lot to learn from what the Soviets were doing, and he proceeded to create a uh, translation project. Um, starting in the, in, in the 1960s that would translate a number of important works written by the Soviets um, about math education and, and um, distribute the, these to, to educators in the United States. He, for example, he discovered that, um, that the Soviets had become very interested in, in some Dutch uh, 
thinkers who were the Van Heelas who were who were writing about psychology of mathematics and coming up with some interesting ideas that the Soviets were applying over there and uh, and and Bershoop was able to to, to, to bring the, the Van Heelas uh, ideas to, to this country and where they have been uh, influential. Now, I've been to several dinners with colleagues at the homes of my professors uh, during my graduate education and since, but never have they had the feeling, as you describe it, of the salons that Virshup would host. So he, he, yes, Virshup and his wife um, were there at the University of Chicago. You know, Chicago is a very high-powered research university, um, and and. Mr. and Mrs. Virshup became concerned when their daughter was taking classes at the University of Chicago that she wasn't really having much contact with these great research people in, in mathematics and in other fields. And, and, and they determined that they would do something about this. And, and they, they became housemasters of a, of a, of a uh, undergraduate residence there at the University of Chicago and and then they they established a lecture program basically, um, where they would invite someone to give a little talk, and then they would have everybody um, over to their apartment for for um, for for, for uh, snacks and drinks, and and uh, and you know that you get to talk with Milton Friedman or Saul Bellow or whoever happened to be the speaker, and it was really quite a remarkable intellectual feast, as I understand it. So another mathematician who uh, did a significant amount of translating work was Joe Diaz. Yes, yes. Now he's one who who's uh, who I have deep roots, deep connections, personal connections with. Um, I'm pretty sure that he went to my parents' wedding. I think in 1949, my father took uh, graduate a graduate course in partial differential equations from him at Brown University in the 1940s. And uh, so, so I knew Joe from as long as I can remember. He was um, a research, you know, he was, he was a, a research mathematician. I, I make a point of referring to him as someone who was not, I, I wouldn't call him a great mathematician, but he was a very productive and, 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 very productive mathematician who took his role seriously in, 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 in the mathematics community. And one of the things that he did was, um, was he, his, his advisor was another very important mathematician, Lippmann Bears, who um, Joe was, was Lippmann Bears first PhD student at Brown University. Bears was not at Brown very long, but Joe, Joe Diaz was, was his student there. And from from Bears, Diaz learned of the importance of uh, the, the, the large amount of important mathematical research being published in Russian. And Bears was fluent in Russian, and he encouraged Joe to become uh, expert in Russian so that Joe was able to translate a number of, um, of papers um, from Russian into, into English. So it was an important service, which Joe was, was very big on serving the mathematics community with, 
with serving on committees and and reviewing uh, submissions to journals and giving talks at, at at meetings and so on, and that that's a service that you know some mathematicians kind of resent it. I think, um, uh, especially, well, I, I shouldn't cast aspersions on people, but uh, um, there are those who 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 feel you know. Anything taking taking away from their own personal research is is just wasted time, but Joe did not feel that way, and he, and he really tried to serve the community in any way he could. You also portray him uh, in in my on my reading as someone um, very enthusiastic about the fading of barriers. Uh, so he never made um, he never strongly identified as a Puerto Rican or as a Hispanic, um, American. Right. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I, I certainly don't claim that he is representative of all Hispanic Americans in this regard, but, but that was, that was the way he felt that, that, uh, you know, he was, he was just trying to, to be a good citizen of mathematics, um, mainly. Um, he didn't feel that he, he was, he was he was representing the Puerto Rican community or the Hispanic community at large. But in addition, um, he a lot of his work seemed to be focused not on the unlocking of brand new results, but on the improvement right. yeah. of our understanding of known results. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Yes, he wrote a number of papers, for example, as I mentioned in the book, about you know a very basic topic, the mean value theorem, um, and you know just just trying to 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 tweak things and and give new insights into to known results in such a way that that, that he would you know advance the field um, in, in a, a small but important way. And, and as I mentioned, some mathematicians don't believe that this is. Um, worthy of their uh, their attention. There's there's some mathematicians who feel you know only the great theorems are worth proving, and 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 if anything else is just sort of uh, not 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 worth it. And so another element that comes through in Joe Diaz's story, which we've been which we haven't seen as much as we might have in the chapters we've talked about, is his work uh, towards military applications of mathematics. Yes, yes. Uh, and um, that's, I guess I, I have some, um, per, I, I would say I have personal connections with this too. Uh, my father, um, when he was first out of graduate school, was employed um, as a civilian with the, with the United States Navy at the Naval Ordnance Laboratory and in White Oak, Maryland, and and Joe Diaz was a, uh, a consultant there too. So I was aware from early from early on that one of the things you could do with with mathematics, one of the things that it was used for, was in fact in military applications. That was something I was very much aware of. Um, and then later on, I would I would have my you know my own career in that field as well. Um, now I wasn't aware, I guess. Um, until much later, about how long this, uh, you know, how, how how historically long this relationship between mathematics and and military applications had been. Um, it, 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 as, as I mentioned in the chapter about West Point and Sylvanus Thayer, this this uh, 
goes back uh, quite a ways, but uh, I wasn't really aware of that until much later. Yeah, actually, it was very uh, rewarding to me as a reader to um, be able to recognize how f just how far back into American history we can trace these trends of not only academic mathematics, but military mathematics and the um, research into pedagogy and expansion of access to math education. Another long-term trajectory that you comment on uh, is the, the material with which Joe, Joe Diaz did most of his work, which was differential equations. I wonder if you could right, yeah. elaborate on that comment yeah, a bit. Yeah, that, that, that has some personal resonance for me, too. Um, one, of, one of my favorite memories um, is of my, my, I've mentioned my grandfather, R. Bruce Lindsay, who's mentioned very briefly in the book because he was a student of one of my chapter subjects, E.B. Wilson. And my grandfather was a PhD physicist who felt uh, in many ways that his mathematics background was inadequate. Um, and he expressed this to me very vividly one time when I was probably about 13 or 14 years old. And he said to me that my greatest problem in life is that I never really understood the solution to partial differential equations. And I was kind of amused at this uh, and actually for a while sort of inspired. I, I kind of thought to myself, well, by golly, when I grow up, I'm going to learn how to solve partial differential equations. But as it turned out, I never really got to be very interested in partial differential equations. Um, I'm not sure what that says about me, but that's the, that's the, the the case, um, but I but I was certainly very well aware from this comment by my grandfather that they were a major um, field within mathematics, a, a major field where uh, the applications of mathematics were, were very prominent, especially in physics. And so I knew that uh, it was it was a big deal that partial differential equations, differential equations generally were a very big deal in mathematics. And, I, and they do keep popping up in a number of my chapters. The people um, that I'm writing about have some connection with, part, with differential equations in some way. Um, so I was kind of amused to find that in some ways. Um, and then, of course, then I happened to read um, a comment by the uh, British-American um, mathematical physicist Stephen Wolfram in his uh, huge volume, A New Kind of Science. I forget it was published a few years back. I forget the year, but he he does make some comment. Let's see. Let me, I should just read it. Where he says... Um, yes, Wolfram says um, he believes that the current predominance of partial differential equations is in many respects a historical accident. So what this means is that in the future, when the ideas and methods of this book have successfully been absorbed, the field of mathematics as it exists today will come to be seen as a small and surprisingly uncharacteristic sample of what is actually possible. And what Wolfram seems to be saying is that you know, we, we've existed, mathematics has existed for, 
for centuries here. And, and, and in the last several centuries, partial differential equations have been a very prominent part. Um, but if, if we follow Wolfram's advice, they will, they will sort of disappear and we'll, we'll do everything with computer simulations and we won't actually worry so much about the things we worried about with differential equations for, for these last few centuries. I'm a little bit unclear about how this will really work in practice, but it's, it's an interesting idea. It, it strikes me as a, a very natural and understandable extrapolation from the uh, transition to, uh, or from analytic to numerical methods, which you cover a couple of times in the book, for instance, in yeah, your discussion right. of Grace Mary Hopper's work. Right. That's, that's right. Yeah. She, she had started out in rather um, theoretical mathematics and, and um, but but ended up be- becoming much more attuned to, to numerical methods, um, and this this certainly helped her when she she got into to com- the computer field. And so, to recap several of the uh, threads within the development of mathematics in America in the United States, um, your book it contains many discussions of military institutions and military applications, of developments in mathematics education, uh, and of the, the growth uh, in, um, the, in the culture and in the influence of the academy. But one through line you mentioned you don't give much uh, play is the role of mathematics in industry. So I wonder if you could say a word right. about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that 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 certainly is a deficiency, I would say, uh, in my book. Uh, the only one who really um, might fit that is is Grace Hopper. Um, uh, maybe you might include um, Herman Hollerith to some degree. Um, but uh, yeah, the, I, I'm certainly aware that uh, that there's a lot of mathematics that has been gone gone on in. Um, in industry, I, 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 I mentioned, for example, the famous Bell Labs uh, that was prominent back in the 20th century, with many employing many mathematicians. I, I, um, during my interview, my oral history interview uh, period, I, I did inter- interview one mathematician, um, Henry Pollock, um, who was who was employed at Bell Labs. I, I really didn't probe his his industry work so much because I was mainly interested in him because of his interest in math education, um, which he, he conducted sort of side by side with his industry work. Um, so I, so I really didn't, uh, even, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to say, write a chapter about him, which would have intelligently discussed his industry work. But I, I'm aware that people like him existed, have existed. Um, and, and, you know, so, so um, there's perhaps that's something that I might consider as, as a as follow on to, to learn more about just exactly how mathematicians in industry have operated, how they've interacted with the academy. Um, that, that's certainly something that, that could be done. Is that to say that there might be a new book project on the way? Well, yeah, I, I I feel like I ought to be doing something. Um, this this was a great deal of fun to write this book, um, and and I, and I would 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 be delighted to find a, another project which would uh, 
which would interest me as much. And uh, so, so that that's perhaps a uh, a topic that might to, might work out. Another topic that I was actually working on before I uh, before my editor there at Hopkins, Vince Burke. Uh, proposed this this book that became Republic of Numbers that what I was working on before then was thinking about how to put together a book about the so-called new math education reforms of the 1960s 1950s and 60s now since that time a, a friend of mine Chris Phillips has written a book about that subject a very nice book um, which which covers some of the some of the things I might have said but I, I still have some some things some uh, contributions that would be be distinct from what what Chris uh, has to offer. So I, I think I have something more to say about the new math, and, I, and I'm trying to decide whether that might be uh, something that I might uh, contribute to. That that's a subject that has personal resonance for me as well because I really grew up during that period, um, and I've. I tend to feel a little bit more positive about it than some commentators do. Um, I felt I got a good deal out of the attempt to bring a little bit more abstraction into the curriculum at that time. So that would be interesting to know about if you if you do end up pinning a new book on the topic. Thank you. Uh, so one question I'd like to ask before closing is with respect to the present book, would you recommend uh, for listeners who are eager to pick it up Another piece of scholarship or media that makes a good companion to it. Well, um, as a, yeah, as a matter of fact, there's a book that that that's coming out um, by the late David Zitarelli, um, and I'm I'm a little bit unclear when it's coming out. It's 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 being published by um, the MAA, um, but as as you may know, the MAA. Uh, now publishes its books under the auspices of the AMS. But anyway, David's book, um, he, he died earlier this year, Very a good friend of mine, um, and his book is, is titled, um, let's see, a history, a history of Mathematics in the United States and Canada. And it, it, it um, there's a cover of the book that I've seen somewhere that suggests that he talks about some of the same people that I talk about. I think the cover has pictures of Kelly Miller and um, Christine Ladd Franklin. Um, I'm sure that David will cover things in a different way than I have. Um, and he will, he's more concerned, more, more, much more focused on research mathematics than, than I have been. I, I try to give a sort of equal play to, to mathematics education, um, but and but David's book um, should should be a, an interesting companion to mine. And your book, to reiterate, is Republic of Numbers: Unexpected Stories of Mathematical Americans Through History. Dave, thanks very much for joining me on New Book Network. Sorry, New Books in Mathematics. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. I enjoyed it very much. Sorry, can we take another try and record that outro? Okay, okay, okay. sure. And your book is Republic of Numbers, Unexpected Stories of Mathematical Americans Through History. David Lindsay Roberts, thanks so much for joining me on New Books in Mathematics. Thank you, Corey. I enjoyed it very much. 